0: Welcome back to Power Play.
1: Throughout this season, we're bringing you stories about the power of music, the music of the powerful, music as a means to power, and what happens when music and power go head-to-head. I'm Ross. And I'm Garbo.
0: Let's get to it.
1: Before we get to today's main topic, we're going to provide some historical background on multiple levels. At first, the relevance of this stuff might not be glaringly apparent, but we hope you'll take some time to think about how it all might fit together, or at least better than we can manage in one episode.
0: Right. So today we're going to meet Chen Yi, a composer and something of a luminary of contemporary classical music. Chen is a celebrated figure across the world, and especially in China and the United
1: States. Chen is Chinese-American, and that identity and the experiences associated with each part of it are integral to her music. Chen has complicated relationships with both China and America, and within and underneath those relationships are nuanced cultural settings and societal contexts that underpin her work.
0: And to be clear, Many white Americans, like me and Carvo, aren't typically educated or informed on how to grasp the full breadth of her experiences. We can offer, though, a certain degree of historical background that might give you a way of thinking about these things further, doing research on your own, and listening to perspectives, both verbal and musical, from people who have different backgrounds than you.
1: So, for the historical context, we're going to venture roughly 50 years back in time. By now, in Americans' collective historical memory, the decade of the 1960s was the height of political convulsion. Images and sounds and feelings of revolution were sweeping the nation, and our country has arguably never been the same.
0: But really, you know, America has gone through a lot of different political makeovers through the years. How successful were they in either defending or overturning oppressive systems? That's a much larger question.
1: Yeah, but regardless, the United States arguably witnessed more upheavals and rebellions and cries for change in the 1960s than at any other time in American history. The convergence of movements for justice for people of marginalized racial, gender, sexual, and class identities typify this era as a refashioning of what is personal, what is political, and what it means to navigate life in America, if one is not sitting with multiple levels of privilege at once.
0: But America wasn't the only place going through more visible and audible crises of identity, culture, and politics. China in the 1960s was experiencing upheavals and revolutions in the process of trying to figure out how to deal with the legacies of colonialism and imperialism, that nations like Britain, France, and the United States had left.
1: One of the things that we left out of that list of identities the United States was reckoning with, and there are so many others we could address, but one is nationality. An identity, a process, a performance, a history that has taken an unprecedented significance in our modern world. Yeah, and
0: and by modern, in many ways, we mean Western and colonized because Western colonialism and imperialism have shaped much of how we view politics and ourselves within those politics today.
1: Nationality and nationhood do have complicated histories, and this is not to say that non-Western political structures weren't nations, but the primary concept of nationhood that we have today stems from the example of Western colonial and imperial powers like Britain, France, Germany, and the United States, and many would argue Those nations built much of their identities and their powers through privileging white wealth and status over the rights and dignity and status of black people, indigenous people, and people of color around the world. Now, you may not fully agree with that kind of analysis, but it is a prominent academic way of thinking about how our current world is shaped. And besides, honestly, much of it is factual.
0: So, given all of that political and historical and cultural context, Let's get back to Chen Yi. Without the context we were just discussing, what follows in this episode won't make much sense. Unlike how many Americans don't or won't understand why identity politics are at the heart of how things work in the United States, because our systems of education don't teach us adequately about such things, we've got to know how both recent and centuries old histories of identity and power mold who we are and how powerful we see ourselves as being within these dominant structures.
1: Yeah, of course. And that's especially important to keep in mind when we, as Americans, from the West, take a look at non-Western, non-American, or non-European places in history and politics. We can't simply carry over all the structures and systems of privilege, oppression, and marginalization that we have had and still do in America today.
0: Okay, wait, wait. We have got way too much politics going on here and no music. Where's the music, Carbo? Where is the music?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we should probably get to that. And we could spend all day talking about recent global history, but let's truly uh, get to it. So today, Chen Yi. Chen, as we've mentioned, is a Chinese-American composer with complicated relationships to systems of power. Relationships that bridge the supposed divide between culture and politics, between identity and politics, and between the expectation of a singular cultural mindset and the possibilities of a multicultural one.
0: Chen grew up cherishing both Western and Chinese instrumental music, playing everything from Russian and German classics to very old Chinese folk music. As with many composers, performers, conductors, and other folks associated with music in some way— Chen felt more than a fleeting or dutiful obligation to music. Music was a passion, a source of life and persistence, of meaning, and figuring out how to live in ambiguity and seek out some clarity.
1: To give you an idea of what Chen's work ended up sounding like over the years, here's part of one of Chen's many choral works. This one's called Thinking of My Home, and it's based on an ancient Chinese poem by the poet Lai Bai.
0: Chen directly combines English and Chinese language lyrics here, and evokes both more Western and more Chinese musical traditions in the notes and chords. It's not enough, though, to simply recognize that Chen works in both Chinese and Western musical vocabularies. For Chen, and for many other Chinese and Chinese-American musicians her age, their devotion to classical music was at one point politically subversive and even dangerous in China.
1: Chen was born in Guangzhou, China, in 1953, what were the early years of the People's Republic of China. After more than two decades of civil war, beginning in 1927, the Communist Party of China in 1949 won out over Kuomintang, the former ruling party of the Chinese government, which relocated to Taiwan. To this day, the Taiwanese government claims to be the true China.
0: But in 1949, the Communist Party, led in large part by Mao Zedong, had taken over most of the massive areas that make up the Chinese mainland. And following the example of places like Russia, Mao and the Communist Party sought to revolutionize and communize China.
1: Mao's authoritarian methods combined the ideologies of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin into a new way of operating a communist state, Maoism. Maoist policies emphasize the collectivization of economic and material production, with the state intervening to enforce cooperation between, and within, farming and manufacturing communities.
0: Such policies, known as the Great Leap Forward, were similar to what Joseph Stalin had set the standard for, and was continuing to do in the Soviet Union with his five-year plans. And like the Soviet Union, China experienced some devastating consequences. In the late 1950s, the confluence of bad crop yields, droughts, floods, and other environmental and policy failures brought about one of the worst famines in history, in which around 30 million people died from starvation, illness, and malnutrition.
1: Combined with other atrocities, Mao's leadership resulted in a total of over 45 million deaths, as the ramifications of the Great Leap Forward were realized over several decades. Such devastation and crises left the Communist Party's grip on the Chinese people's consciousness more than a bit shaky. And many folks were looking forward for alternatives and wondering why Mao's version of communism had been the best path forward in the first place.
0: In the late 1950s, the confluence of bad crop yields, droughts, floods, and other environmental and policy failures brought about one of the worst famines in history in which around 30 million people died from starvation, illness, and malnutrition.
1: Such devastation and crises left the Communist Party's grip on the Chinese people's consciousness more than a bit shaky. And many folks were looking for alternatives and wondering why Mao's version of communism had been the best path forward in the first place.
0: But Maoism was not just about farming collectively and revolutionizing economic production. Maoism took aim at any sort of culture that would defy its goals, and some people were doing just that. Sensing such questioning of their authority and the unrest it brought about, Mao and his political allies embarked on a period of unprecedented crackdowns on political, cultural, and economic subversion of strict Maoist ideals. The primary aim of the Cultural Revolution that began in 1966 was to root out all vestiges of Western imperialism, from cultures of classical music, to the politics of democracy, and the economics of capitalism.
1: And again, it's vital to recognize that this urge of Mao's did not come out of a vacuum. Mao, the Chinese Communist Party, and their supporters were responding, at least in part, to the legacies that Western imperialism had left them. For decades and centuries, European and American powers had tried to pressure China into engaging in trade, especially of things like opium. British, French, and American militaries, and especially their navies, had been patrolling Chinese shores and going up Chinese rivers, trying to bully and coerce the Chinese to give them what they wanted.
0: And if the Chinese weren't willing to comply, guns got involved. This was called gunboat diplomacy, and it reveals a lot about how European and American powers viewed China and other Asian countries, regions, and peoples as exploitable, able to be abused and cajoled into submission. And that kind of assumed power imbalance was gendered as well, since Western powers and peoples viewed Asian powers and peoples as more feminine and commodifiable.
1: Orientalism certainly comes into play here as well. Orientalism, or the representation and almost misrepresentation of Oriental or Eastern or in some way quote-unquote Asian culture through a Western lens was a racialized, gendered, sexualized, and classed way of viewing and attempting to subjugate Asian populations beneath a dominant Western gaze.
0: Orientalism was pervasive and pernicious, and it still is in many ways today. And so, before we view Mao and his communist supporters as objecting to Western ideas and politics and culture unfairly. We have to remember that that history of capitalist exploitation, hyperfeminization, Orientalism, and general anti-Asian prejudice was very much alive in Mao's time, and still is in our own.
1: And getting back to the 60s in the United States, we can see those anti-Asian forces in the Vietnam War— which entangled the United States and China more than ever before. The American support for anti-communist forces in Vietnam conflicted with the Chinese support for communist forces in Vietnam, and the political and cultural struggles of both countries came into greater relief.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about major conflicts like this, it's always important to keep in mind the various levels of detachment, privilege, and victimization that are at play. For some white Americans, the war was in a faraway, unfathomably different and distant land, a place where American soldiers were shipped off to, shotguns guns and dropped bombs, all without much of an impact on the lives of everyday Americans. For other Americans, fighting in American wars was a horrifying and embarrassing irony, since so many people living in America didn't have the rights and freedoms they needed to live their lives.
1: And from the Chinese side of things, the Cultural Revolution coincided with the Vietnam War in the mid-to-late 60s. As the Cultural Revolution progressed, Mao became more and more extreme, purging scores of officials from his government and eventually trying to carry out the re-education of Chinese youth by removing them to the countryside.
0: Chen Yi was one of these young Chinese people Mao forced to leave their families and homes, to live with rural farmers who would teach them how to contribute to a collectivist future. Education in these camps tried to intervene in these kids' minds, to redirect them away from Western imperialist thinking toward a future that did not rely on the past.
1: And under the banner of defying polluted traditions, Maoists also took aim at Chinese folk culture. As much as they wanted to get rid of Western classical music, the revolutionaries wanted to move beyond things like Chinese folk music, to subvert people's smaller, more individual cultures, and bring them into a more collective culture and consciousness.
0: And Chen was even able to sneak her violin into her re-education camp. When she could find the time and felt safe enough to do it in secret, Chen would bring out her violin and practice her music composing new tunes that incorporated both Western classical music and Chinese folk songs.
1: Chen's flexible and innovative skills as a composer didn't exactly blossom here, per se in the midst of what was both a traumatic and revelatory experience. But Chen did, according to later interviews, learn a great deal about the culture and history of the Chinese countryside. After spending her days carrying massive loads to the top of a mountain, and planting and harvesting rice and vegetables, Chen would return to sleep in her bed, violin next to her.
0: It wasn't exactly a secret that Chen had her violin with her. In fact, Chen used it to her advantage, in public, she would play only those songs deemed revolutionary. But underneath the revolutionary tunes, she would sneak in little bits of Chinese folk music, or some hints of Paganini, she later recalled.
1: Yeah, that's a remarkable way to represent a subculture, hiding it there in plain sight.
0: Yeah, it truly was, and this made Chen even more passionate about keeping Chinese folk music and her affinity for Western classical music alive. For Chen, though, that last part, the western music part is more complex. When it comes to classical music, Chen does not see a binary between western and non-western forms.
1: For Chen, neither exists exclusively on its own. She weaves tunes and aesthetics and styles from multiple musical traditions at once. Take, for example, part of Chen's piece Spring Festival, which takes its melody from a southern Chinese folk song and uses the Golden Ratio, a mathematical relationship with ancient origins, as its form. This is not always a pointed practice that Chen strives for. She just writes music and incorporates multiple musical, cultural, and formal vantage points as a way of living, working, and creating.
0: That kind of mentality, a sort of both-and rather than either-or, did not sit well with Chinese authorities during the Cultural Revolution. For two years, when Chen was 15 and 16, the government forced her to labor in those difficult circumstances and tried to press anything other than state-sanctioned music out of her consciousness.
1: But the Cultural Revolution did eventually come to an end. And, in fact, many of its architects admitted that it was not only a failure, but a colossal mistake, seeing how it divided Chinese people further, and brought about so much deadly violence things started to move toward more of an acceptance that China would have to deal with the legacies of imperialism and Western influence without subjecting Chinese people to repression.
0: Of course, the flares that the Cultural Revolution inflamed would keep cropping up over the next decades and into the present day. The conflict between binary visions of imperialism and anti-imperialism, capitalism and communism, Western and Asian... Those remained, and still remain, very much alive, both in China and in Western countries like the United States.
1: As the fervors of the Cultural Revolution subsided in China, Chen Yi was able to return to playing music, but this time under the watchful eye of the government. Both of Chen's parents were musicians. Her mother favored the piano and her father the violin. Chen, too, was able to play both well, but... She adored the violin.
0: Even before Chen was forced to leave her home for the re-education camps in the countryside, she and her family had taken great pains to conceal their musical instruments at home, as well as their educational books, fearing that Mao's Red Guards would raid their home, confiscate their music and books, and punish them for having illegal culture.
1: The family draped thick cloths over the windows so that no one could see in, and they muffled their music as much as possible. But still. Chen and her brother kept listening to records and playing music, at a feverish pace. Many nights, Chen got less than six hours of sleep because she simply could not get enough of her music.
0: As much as the music kept her going and gave her something beautiful and meaningful to do during the chaos of the first years of the Cultural Revolution, Learning and passing down the music was, for Chen's parents, a way of preparing for the inevitable. One day, the Red Guards discovered Chen's beloved records and destroyed them. The guards ransacked their home, leaving few things musical in their wake. The next day, Chen's family were being sent away, and Chen herself was on her way to a re-education camp.
1: But since she had spent so much time playing and memorizing music... Shen was able to keep practicing in the countryside. After two years struggling through the hard labor, a revolutionary opera, the Beijing Opera Company, recruited her. Amidst all the purges of the Cultural Revolution, well-trained musicians were becoming increasingly scarce.
0: That scarcity was due to the revolutionary sphere of older intellectual musicians, whose minds were supposedly too addled with the lies of Western culture. Younger musicians like Chen Yi, though, were seen as impressionable, able to be recruited into the revolutionary cultural cause. The opera heard about a girl who used to win countless competitions as a child, and they went to find her. An army officer, who would later become the leader of the Beijing Opera Company, drove a jeep into the field she was working in, and took her back to Guangzhou.
1: Once they got to Guangzhou, Chen was asked to sight-read part of a piece from a new revolutionary opera. After waiting to hear the results of her audition, future and livelihood hanging in the balance, she and a bunch of other young musicians found out they got the job. In the new Guangzhou branch of the Beijing Opera, Chen and the others had some of the most elaborate staging, instruments, and other elements of any opera in China. They even got to play Western style music, as long as it fit the narrative of the revolutionary operas. <laughs>
0: Chen quickly became the concert master, who was in charge of correcting any mistakes the orchestra made. Chen became familiar with every single instrument in the orchestra, and could play, tune, and manage every one of them. Chen also had her first tries at major compositions, since the opera always needed new material.
1: She was the point person for practically everything. And keep in mind, this is Chen's mid-to-late teenage years. After eight years working for the opera, the cultural revolution had pretty much dissolved, and academic and arts institutions were opening back up or, more often, opening for the first time.
0: Chen was admitted to and became part of the first class of composers who would graduate in 1978 from the Central Conservatory of Music in Beijing. For many reasons, Chen decided to come to the United States to study at Columbia University in New York. And once she got to the United States, her view of the world and her place in the American scheme of things became gradually clearer.
1: first, when Chen arrived in New York, she thought of it as a beautiful, lively, multicultural city that she could thrive in, and in many ways, at least in Chen's memory, it was. But after spending more time in other parts of the United States, she became racialized and gendered in ways that she had not personally experienced in China. Chen
0: came to the United States in the midst of the Women's Liberation Movement and witnessed the aftermath and continued efforts of the anti-war, civil rights, gay liberation, and other social, political, and cultural movements. The underrepresentation of American women, as composers in particular, became progressively more apparent.
1: Chen had started working as a resident composer for the Women's Philharmonic in New York almost as soon as she set foot in the United States, gaining in popularity, Chen and her work, played by the Philharmonic, traveled to Washington, D.C. to play for the National Organization for Women, a feminist group fighting for women's rights in the United States.
0: In Chen's memory, seeing an audience entirely full of women was a, quote, striking and exciting experience since she began to feel common cause with women in the United States who struggled against the patriarchy, including in the concert hall.
1: But as Chen would later note, she has devoted a great deal of time advocating for and supporting women in her field, but especially for Asian and Asian American women, who face intersecting prejudices against them in terms of cultural and institutional representations and expectations.
0: The place of Asian and Asian American people in the United States, and in Chinese case, Chinese and Chinese American people, has been precarious over the past centuries nativist and white nationalist ideologies in the late 19th century strengthened and developed in response to the spikes in immigration to the United States from regions around the world, including China.
1: After having exploited thousands of Chinese laborers to construct railroads and build other infrastructure in the American West, American authorities and American people became fearful that too many Asian and Chinese people were coming to the United States that these newcomers would take jobs, land, opportunities, and futures that white people at the time thought they had rights to.
0: This fear of immigrants began to culminate in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which effectively banned all immigration from China to the United States. Multiple laws and congressional compromises had led to this point, including the Page Act of 1875, which prohibited most Chinese women, specifically, from immigrating to the United States. One of the main reasons the far more absolute Exclusion Act was passed in 1882 was the rise in anti-Chinese terrorism and violence by white Americans.
1: But despite its supposed effort to limit violence against Chinese people, the Chinese Exclusion Act shored up and inflamed xenophobia and racism. In the decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century, White America was reaching a boiling point in its battles over immigration. As white vigilantes assumed roles as de facto police and border patrol officers, many parts of the American West became entangled and embroiled with a mass white nationalist and supremacist politics against both Asian immigrants and Native American peoples, for two examples.
0: One particular example of anti-Chinese violence was the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885 in what is now the state of Washington. A group of white miners murdered 28 Chinese people, injured 15 others, and set fire to their homes. Newspapers, as far away as the Los Angeles Times, reported on the event as successful and painted it as a non-violent way of carrying out Chinese expulsion. As anti-Chinese violence proliferated in the late 1880s and early 90s, the Scott and Geary Acts of 1888 and 1892 respectively made it nearly impossible to immigrate to the United States from China, and Chinese people already in the United States' borders were subject to surveillance, doubts about the legality of their immigration status, and racism and racist violence. Many people in China were well aware of the dismal state of things for Chinese immigrants in America. And Chinese folks hardly immigrated to the United States between 1882 and 1943, when Congress passed the Magnuson Act, which allowed specifically 105 Chinese people to emigrate legally to the U.S. each year.
1: Obviously, that's a very low number, but that's also just so specific. Uh, I know. Anyway, uh, it wouldn't be until 1965, when Congress passed the Immigration and Nationality Act, that significant numbers of Chinese Americans would be able to enter the United States and stay for any extended period of time. This act was intended to promote family reunification and to bring quote unquote, skilled workers into the country. But, as had been the case over the past decades, many Americans saw Chinese immigrants as cheap, exploitable labor. In fact, Many Chinese people had been able to enter the United States to work in Chinese restaurants and other establishments that found an exemption in the anti-Chinese immigration laws that allowed some numbers of merchant migrants to enter the United States. But even then, becoming a naturalized citizen was nearly impossible. Some of the more visible, more elite immigrants, though, began to complicate American perspectives on immigration from China and other Asian regions and countries. Within the next 15 years before Chen Yi would make her way to the United States, images of what Americans thought were ideal immigrants took hold.
0: And this model immigrant coincided with representations of highly educated, successful Asian immigrants, who leaned closer to the privileges of wealth, status, education, and even whiteness. Asians and Asian Americans in the United States became figured in the American racial and class consciousness as the model minority, what is now thought of as a myth that privileges lighter skin, higher education levels, middle or upper class status, and other signs of American picturesqueness and power.
1: The model minority myth was a way for some privileged Asian American immigrants to position themselves as the neat, acceptable, assimilable alternatives to people with darker skin, less education, less income, and less of an apparent claim to Americanness. And people like Chen Yi certainly had some of those privileges.
0: Most of all, though, the myth of the model minority was yet another way for white Americans to try to define... Who gets to enter, live, and thrive in the United States. And despite the model minority myth, nearly all Asian Americans continued to face racism and other prejudices in the United States, especially for Chen Yi, coming to terms with a sexist society, which was also racist, and xenophobic, and classist, on top of the sexism. And without getting into too many specific political jabs, every one of those oppressions exists today especially notable in the actions and rhetoric of the current president.
1: Certainly true. Uh, but With much of what we've talked about today, many folks could look at someone like Chen Yi and have no idea what her history is, why and how she does what she does, and why the two are related. For Chen, there's no way of separating any music from society and from culture. And both society and culture are rooted in how certain societies and cultures try to classify people based on certain characteristics and expect certain things from them.
0: And often, experiences can match one's background. Identities and how different identities intersect are vital for understanding the world, but they require context and history in order to make sense. Same goes for music and the people who work in it and love it. Backgrounds and narratives and histories are not extraneous to music, in Chen's mind. They are the music, the basis for sounds and orchestrations, that can cross binaries and borders, and fashion new lives and identities and art. Not in spite of the past, or in ignorance of it, but in appreciation for its complexity and its personal relevance to every person who writes, plays, or listens to music.
1: Not everyone has the privilege to cross borders, or to find security on the other side of them, or to manage to escape binaries that they don't choose for themselves. But those who do have those privileges might need to realize that fighting for the rights with those who lack their privileges is not some sort of courtesy. It's a way of life, a way of keeping memory alive and insisting on humanity through art.
0: And Chen Yi is still very much alive, very much insisting on humanity through art. Chen spends time creating and living in both the United States and China, where she and her siblings are all prominent musicians.
1: Chen is now a composer and professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But she and her work reach far and wide beyond that. Chen has lived through and been a part of major political and cultural shifts, shifts that are still in process today. And it's important to note that we're not trying to reduce Chen to the historical context around her or deploy Chen as an end-all example of Chinese-American life. Chinese-American and other Asian-American experiences are extremely varied. We're just trying to give one glimpse here.
0: But we hope you'll see how Chen Yi can kind have of fashioned her music in the midst of American and Chinese cultures that can privilege binaries over the possibilities of breaking them and prejudices over the possibilities of learning and living beyond them. And what can result is music that does not ignore culture or society or politics, but seeks life and beauty beneath, within, and beyond them. Thank you for listening to Power Play. I'm Ross, and Carbo is my illustrious co-host as well as the creator and editor of Powerplay. This episode was researched by myself and produced by Tamberley Ferguson. Thank you to Josh Sacco for audio engineering and indispensability. In addition to an interview with Chen Yi conducted by Jennifer Kelly and published in In Her Own Words, Conversations with Composers in the United States, sources used in this episode include work in Asian American studies such as Speak It Louder, Asian Americans Making Music by Deborah Wong, and Musicians from a Different Shore, Asians and Asian Americans in Classical Music by Mari Yoshihara, as well as historical articles like The Echoes of Chinese Exclusion by Irene Xu. The music you heard today was CDC 1 and CDC 2 by Costa T, Thinking of My Home and Spring Festival by Chen Yi, Mozart's Symphony No. 40, The Revolutionary Opera, Red Detachment of Women, Verus Bellum Sonos by Silva de Alegria, National Spark by Krzysztof and Arctic by Chad Crouch. Power Play is presented by WDAV Classical Public Radio. If you like what you heard, you can find more information on this episode and other great programming at wdav.org slash subscribe.